Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Brian Gallant and uh, Brian and I, we, it's, uh, we've uh, known each other for longer than we played <laughs> racquetball. Brian may be the best racquetball player I've run into. Uh, and but we've got come to know each other. Uh, just you know, you just slowly discover. And and uh, in Brian, I have to say that from the very beginning, you, you, there is something about him. And of course, in the beginning, I didn't understand what it was. You you never know people's story. But here was a guy that uh, just boldly, when we would play, we play racquetball together. He says, let's pray before we do this. And guys that I, you know, we know that are not, that's not their inclination. And yet, I know that, that people t- are drawn to him, that they, there is something about him uh, that they feel they can come to him. And I felt the same thing. And then as we got to know one another a little bit, and he shared his story, I came to know why. Why, what it was, the experience in his life. And so I want to I begin with a question that Brian himself has said. I've, I've read, just read his book, and he uses this question uh, to ask people of many different faiths. You know, we all have uh, ideas about what salvation is. And I think this may get go right to the heart of this issue, and that is, Brian, when were you saved? <laughs> well, thank you, Paul, for the opportunity to be here and uh, for us to be clothed in normal things as opposed to our, <laughs> our gym stuff, and the uh, smells a lot better as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, I noticed that. <laughs> um, yeah, when was I saved? That's a question that oftentimes when I'm standing in front of groups, I've worked uh, as a bridge person between Muslims and Christians specifically and a number of different contexts, and I often will ask that question. And it's, it's a, you know, almost get a perverse sense of pleasure as you watch people squirm mm-hmm. because depending on the particular uh, religious background, there's multiple different answers to that question. <laughs> You know, there'll be some person that may jump up and say, I know exactly when I was saved, I know who the preacher was, I know what time it was, and, you know, hallelujah, thank you Jesus, I'm in. Whereas there's other groups, because of their upbringing and so forth, uh, they have a haunting void, wondering if they're saved, or can they do enough to be saved. And I know specifically when I speak in front of fairly conservative groups, and some Muslim groups as well, that question can cause trouble. Mm. And and even to the point that if someone was about to say they know when they're saved, even that would be borderline heresy. Mm -hmm. So so what I do is I'll ask that question, and then I wait. I wait to let the insides churn, and just to watch people's faces. And then I say, I was saved on the day my children died. And there usually is a very clear 
visual pause in the room as people try to work through what on earth could I mean? And yet that has been our journey, is that through one of the most unspeakable events of life, God saved my wife and me. And specifically, I mean, the, 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 just to hear you say that, that one of the things that you talk about, that what part of what you mean, is that you talk about you're saved from a kind of uh, legalism, <laughs> right? And you, and you and you talk about that you could have referred to your story as the confessions of a legalist. <laughs> is that partly it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's necessarily an intentional plan of various religious groups or various tribes, but there seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of people's lives. And with your um, your experience of working in the way people's minds work and so forth, I'm sure you've seen it regularly. But somewhere in the process of growing up in a... Uh, faith tradition, somehow or another I came to believe that faith was my being able to explain God, whether that meant theologically or doing particular things to make sure that God was happy with me. Uh, and so, so faith was this, this commodity, of, commodity of information or of action. And so my my relationship with God was built upon what I did. Mm-hmm. And then, when the children died, I could do nothing. And so everything had to change. And so, I, I, I mean, what your whole book is, is uh, you know, a, a book about really a, a shift in your perspective of everything because of this traumatic event. And I assume that we all begin with a kind of perverse understanding of who God is. Right. The, the legalism is not, nobody has a corner on legalism. <laughs> That's right. It just seems to be everywhere. So much so that in my work, uh, that that's I would say that's the universal problem. It, mm. it, in some denominations, we just that's what we are. We're legalists. But even if we, it, it just seems to be the human tendency. Right. And what a legalist can do, and this is what I see happening in your book and your story, that we tend to use our religion to beat people over the head, and to in some way you talk about this that you learned. Uh, that you ceased fearing other people, you and with that fear you ceased judging. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, the uh, when when you go through the trauma that we went through, when you're doing everything right according to whatever your particular rules are. <laughs> mm. You know, and different tribes have different rules. Mm. <laughs> and so um, we, were, we were doing everything we're supposed to do. And then we go to speak and to share a sermon. And on the trip home from doing that, our car loses control at 55 miles an hour and rolls down an embankment 
three or four times. And when that car stops, our family of four that we had, you know, that we loved to be as much as we could understand love, you know, we have food fights in the morning and children playing and that particular day our, our little girl took some of her first steps at ten and a half months. The last words I heard my son say at three and a half years old was, Daddy, it's cold because it was a December day and there was a little bit of snow on the ground and all of a sudden you go from a family of four and in moments it's destroyed and so when the car stopped my whole world was decimated and I thought my wife was dead I had to literally find and carry my own children in my hands And as I'm laying them on the ground and giving them a kiss that I would hope did something and it doesn't, and I look back to the car and I see this mangled mess with my wife trapped in there and she's covered in blood and vomit and not moving and everything just moves very slowly. And I remember walking around literally in circles and obviously in shock and yelling out, crying out to God, God, where are you? You know, I've been doing everything right. And all of a sudden, whatever box I thought I had God in was destroyed. And we entered a very dark place. A place of anger, a place of depression, denial, bargaining with deals that you'd never win. And it it lasted for a long time. And in the midst of that darkness, which the Bible references as the valley of the shadow of death, uh -huh. eventually we became aware that we weren't alone, even though we felt all of that aloneness. Uh -huh. And in the process of that, in that, that destruction of all the things that you think you know. When you come out on the other side, eventually, by the grace of God, the things that most people feel are most important in life, you realize don't really matter at all. And the things that do matter are of ultimate importance, and that is relationships with people, honesty with yourself, and truly living each day as a gift. Mm. And as at the age of 26 and for the next year or so and, and in the process of us going through the grief, here before we're 30 years old, my wife and I were experiencing that kind of transformation. And when you eventually walk through the other side, you are different. And everything about life is different. And even faith is different. Um, faith for me has changed from being a nice little box that I could explain God with and I had all the answers and I would meet you or whoever else and listen to for long enough to find out where I needed to fix you and then I would go about doing that mm -hmm. to where I have no more box. <laughs> well, I say that, we'll probably we make our own boxes pretty regularly, but mm -hmm. to keep the focus on the reality that God is bigger than any box I can construct, 
and I no longer contain him. He can fill me, but I don't contain him. Mm-hmm. And that creates a very tangible and radical humility and humanness that allows me to see people as others on the same journey that I am on. Mm. And so it's changed my need, my internal need to have to change people in order to feel good. My value is no longer in what I do. Mm -hmm. My value is now who I am, or more importantly, whose I am. And and that changes the whole the whole paradigm of, of life. Mm-hmm. And so now faith is no longer about me being able to explain God or defend God, to where now faith is a life of trusting God even when I don't have a clue what he's doing. Because he's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And I you know that when you meet when I, I met you and and other people that I've met who have been through terrible trauma or just you know that 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 there is a humility we all learn a humility and you know uh, that in Japan one of the missionaries there who had they had also lost they'd lost a child and hmm. um, went through and he was one just to meet him you know here is this you immediately there was this connection you knew here on the other hand and I think this is what you're describing as the legalist there it's once you've been there once you understand this place of humility and then you understand how people use their religion as a kind of pharisaical uh, means of i'm you know i i've got it made i'm sorry about you buddy <laughs> uh you know but maybe i can help you right um that is, there is a kind of, of uh, inherent, you know, I, I think this is not Christianity. And it's ironic that, you know, I think this is precisely what Christianity is speaking against. But so much of Christianity is this kind of, it's used as a weapon uh, of, uh, just like any other religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just what religion does for us, I think. Uh, that it is a means of bolstering our own identity, just like nationalism, mm. just like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of bolstering, bolstering your identity. Am I, in, is this, am I hitting it that in some way that world's broken apart and you don't have a grasp? You know, I know when I, when I first went to Japan, I had a master of divinity and knew, I pretty much knew everything. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, that's what those papers mean on the wall, right? <laughs> and the Japanese people were so blessed to have me coming to them and to teach them, you know. And of course, that doesn't last very long because you soon realize what an idiot you really are, <laughs> yeah. and that you really have nothing to say to people, and what you thought you had to say doesn't connect with them at all. It means nothing. And so through that process, and, and I, you know, you're much brighter than I'm pretty slow, and so it took me, you know, 20 years to figure out this isn't, you know. And so there, the, just life creates a humility, but it, and, and to say this then, it also comes back theologically. 
and this is what you're describing. Tell me then specifically how your your whole approach to God and and your faith has has been changed up. Yeah, actually, that's a that's an important question, and there's a lot of different depths we could take that. Um, depends. We'll see where we roll here, but I've actually struggled at times because we have effectively stayed fairly close to our original tribe or just simply because we still have the opportunity to minister and to serve there um i don't have a need to to break out or do other things as such but just simply because of this change life has become very simple that it's simply a call to love people Mm. the people who are in front of you and um (laughs) <laughs> and there's been times, Paul, where I've actually looked at my pre-accident self and where we are now, and I have actually wondered, and I've told a few people close enough who I thought I was safe to share that with, have I lost my faith? Mm-hmm. Because I no longer have the, and that I may not be able to describe it very well, but but the gung-ho assurance that I'm right and someone else is wrong and the gospel commission means I need to go and tell them and I don't have that anymore in the sense that God has worked in our lives through death. And so who am I to say that God may not be working in someone else's life in ways that I can't comprehend, and I don't have the right to say, well, if you don't accept what I'm saying today, then your day of salvation is over. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the sort of, I want to say the word bold, but, but the, the asinine assumptions that, that so often that, that I had in the past, and I see still, you know, whether you, you hear evangelist X, Y, or Z, or whoever it is, you know, this, and, and I don't have that anymore. I don't have that luxury, if you want to call it that, because... God can do whatever he jolly well pleases. Mm-hmm. And, and yet he's love. God is love and God is good and he's not going to force someone into a place that is not appropriate. And people have choice. And there is the source of much of our human pain and tragedy is, is the fact that people will refuse to choose love. They want to continue on in their life of self-centered focus and destruction or whatever that may be. And some have a sharper incline in that process than others. But, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't have the, the same black and white view of things, mm-hmm. which has made me somewhat of a heretic in my mm-hmm. <laughs> for others who want it to be so clear. I simply don't have it so clear. Um, not that I don't believe in God. God is present in every aspect of our lives and, and joy and fills purpose and and he's able to turn all things for good. The things that I teach as I as it brings out in the book is three very, very simple principles, verses that any Bible student already has memorized, but yet to share them within the context of our experience gives it as as a, as a matrix of how you see life and it and it changes everything. And the first one is regardless of whatever pictures we have of God. God is love, deep, abiding, passionate love. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, where he says, which is a pretty horrendous book 
I mean, you know, a book of judgment, a book of pain and death and, and rape and, and uh, devastation. And yet God calls his people, behold, I've called you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you. We have found that he, even in the midst of the, the pain, the hell, the darkness, whatever, whatever words we choose, he's still there and he's drawing us, he's loving us. And that's a that's a deep love. It's not the the misused and abused word that we have today of, of mm-hmm. you know dysfunctional codependent stuff, but a love that, as the old hymn writer, oh love that will not let me go. You know, yeah. a, a love that pursues. And in the process of that pursuing love, the next verse and the next principle is that he also has a plan for our lives, and, and it's a plan that was chosen before we were ever created, a plan that is good in Christ, that we would be in Him, mm-hmm. filled with His love, transformed by His grace and mercy. Uh, Ephesians captures this, but specifically the verse in Jeremiah twenty eleven, where God, again, you know, God says, I know the plans I have for you, I know the thoughts. They're plans to bless you and give you a future and a hope. And when you're going through tragedy and trauma and grief, you have no plans. You have no future idea. You have no five-year plan. You're just trying to exist and, and to yeah. continue. And and even sometimes don't even want to do that. Mm-hmm. And when we began to realize that this God of love also is a God who has a plan for our life, and it's a good plan, we began to open our hearts and trust Him and to see what would come. And then the third principle, and it's it's one that has been greatly misused, and often spoken at the wrong times. And if it's spoken in a flippant way when someone is hurting, it will do incredible damage. But it doesn't take away the truth of it. So in the context of his love, in the context of us turning our hearts towards his plan and letting him work in our lives, is he's also the God who has the power. Romans eight twenty eight, The power to turn everything for good. Mm. For we know that all things work together for good, who, those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. My wife and I have seen that in our own lives to such an extent, to such a depth, that we trust Him. And so that has changed my whole tight little compartments of evangelism or things like that, where now... Uh, you know, people, well, you have to do this, you have to do that. And I said, you don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God's bigger. Right. And and so now my simple calling in life is to love well, <laughs> is to, yeah. to live in the moment and to love with mm-hmm. the love that I've received and to know that the same God that is pursuing me is also pursuing the world. And the thing, I mean, it, it's a harsh thing to say. But you say it, and that is that this that you've come to this understanding that it it is uh you know when you talk about losing fear of other people and you talk about that what the the ultimate fear is actually fear of death right and you did debt i mean it, there is a sense in which i mean it's sort of the story of Abraham hmm. Abraham's own death doesn't mean anything to him right. But the death of his son means everything to him. Right. And in in some way, that's the, that that's the way that we encounter 
this fear of death and and once you once you see it for what it is i mean that's what i'm seeing in your story that mm. that is the biblical story yeah that you come up against this ultimate thing and you realize it's controlling everything about us that everything that we do is in some way a kind, you know, we're, why are we afraid of other people? Why are we afraid of, hmm. of, you know, being put, you know, shamed? Or why are we afraid of, and in some way it comes back to that fear of death. Right. And that seems like that, that that's what we're, once you're in, that's the meaning of the, the gospel. Right. I mean, that's, that's what changed the early church. I mean, they... The, the disciples, they see Jesus walk out of the tomb victorious over death. Mm-hmm. What, what else can someone do to you? You know, I mean, the resurrection yeah. is the, the, the foundation of, of the faith, realizing that there is nothing now that can be done. You know, I love the point where, you know, Peter is there brought before the same people that put Christ to death, and, mm-hmm. and they're trying to force and push, and, and he says, look, he says, you decide whether it's right to serve God or man, but we're, we're not going to quit talking. Mm-hmm. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when that is taken away as a weapon, it, it changes everything. And I, I, I personally believe, Paul, that we don't see that now in churches. We see leadership programs, lots of structures, great music, really good spiritual entertainment, things like that. Whatever. I'm not trying to be negative, but we don't see living, breathing, walking people who are fearless of death because they are hid in Christ. And so because of that, we are now surrounded by myriads of other philosophies and responses and attempts to, to pacify our journey on this earth. Mm-hmm. And... You just, it's tragic. And, and we see, especially here in the West, the, the inroads of, of secularism and pluralism and hedonism, materialism, just eroding the faith of Christians, of, of everyone. But, you know, those who may claim faith in Christ and will still show up and clock into religious services here and there, yet the life itself is bereft of true power. Because of the, the uh, and I, I never know if people understand, you know, if you, if once you, this, this is, you know, this is the, you know, you quote in your book, Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, I think that's the insight of the, the great Russian writers that you quote Tolstoy mm-hmm. also, uh, that what they capture is this understanding of, you know, uh, one of the things that Dostoevsky does in Brothers Karamazov is talk about, uh, you know, Ilyosha is the, Alyosha, I would get the brothers mixed up, huh. but he's the youngest, he's the, the Christian of the brothers. And his brother recites all the evils. And, and when uh, Dostoevsky's writing this, he's actually, it's not novel, it, he's quoting the newspaper. Hmm. These are actual events wow. of evil that have taken place. That, you know, a little girl that uh, uh, 
was I, uh, she threw a rock and hit one of the Lord's dogs. And the next morning, uh, he he had the whole family line up and sicked the dogs on her and ripped her to pieces. Mm. Uh, and just story after story, all of which were true. Mm. And and in the in the book, Dostoevsky has the older brother Ivan, I think it is, say, "If this is the price for the ticket, you know, to 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 life or salvation or whatever this thing is, I don't. I, I'm giving my ticket back." Mm. Yeah. And so there is this. In other words, you can't lose track, though. Who's telling this story? Well, it's it's uh, it's Dostoevsky, who is a Christian, who has this profound. In other words, there's no flinching. He's he's recognizing this evil and laying it out there. The and this is what you do also in your book. It's not that you have an answer. Hmm. So when you say. And this is your your quote, you know. Why do bad things happen to good people? You change that around. Explain how you change that around. Yeah, the that seems to be the question that is affecting so many people. And one of the main ones that they challenge biblical Christianity with. But I've... I personally believe that it's not so much about us challenging and judging God with that question as much as what I find the Bible teaching that this God of all healing comfort actually comforts us in our affliction and then brings us alongside others who need that comfort. I personally believe that God may allow His children to go through things in their lives that break them down to the very core that allows him to then remake them and to hold them so that their life becomes a living testimony of his faithfulness in the midst of the darkness. So instead of us cursing the darkness and and trying to play our different uh, religious games to avoid trauma and trial, which is futile because it affects everyone, Instead of that, to realize that God allows us to become broken, yet by His grace wounded healers, to come alongside others who desperately need to see a God who can meet them in their pain. Um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book as, as visceral as I did uh, is I believe that we're living in a time where people deny, medicate, run from, avoid do whatever they can to not acknowledge pain. Mm -hmm. And yet, pain becomes one of the greatest tools to call us into a place of openness and honesty and brokenness that allows God to truly meet us. As as you've probably used it before or mentioned, but C.S. Lewis actually has made the statement that, that God whispers in our pleasure but he screams in our pain. And he'll do whatever it takes to get our attention and to to bless and transform us. And so for me, it's it's not about, you know, why is there trouble in the world? Where's God? But it's almost changing that completely to where God's allowing us to go through that so he can 
show his faithfulness in transforming our lives, but then also to then use us to bless others. So it's almost more of a question for us than it right. is about God. <laughs> and you make the distinction between sympathy and empathy. Yes. Explain that. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, they want to say, uh, oh, I feel sorry for your pain. And, and when somebody's really hurting, um, those can be nice words here and there, but, but there's a desire for someone to go deeper. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time my wife and I, this was probably within a year of the accident where everything is, and we're just, we're in the raw brokenness of it still. We went to visit my aunt and she was, uh, wherever, whatever state she was at at the time, and we happened to go with her to church. And uh, we're sitting in the back of the church. Nobody really knows who we are at all and wouldn't expect them to. It's her church that she visits here and there. And, and the the preacher got up to preach, and he began to describe with incredible detail the events around the bombing of the J.P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City. And he describes the parents saying goodbye to their children in the normal habit of the day-to-day and the other parent that might be late because of some disaster at home. And and then he holds up the picture, the iconic picture of the firefighter carrying the, the corpse of the little boy, the blood. And I realized later, I mean at the moment of the sermon, we were a mess, we were dissolved into weeping in the back of the church, wanted to disappear, but we couldn't. Because as he's describing with the ability to 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 capture those feelings from a a presentation perspective or from someone watching from the outside, we were feeling it. Mm-hmm. We know what it's like to go over every last thing you said, every last touch, to, in your mind, cherish those final moments knowing that there won't be any more uh-huh. this side of eternity. And that was the day that, for my wife and for me later, as I was able to reflect, that's when I learned the difference between sympathy and empathy. Empathy being the ability for someone to enter into the pain because they know that pain. And that's a completely different world when someone is hurting. And we didn't realize this very well, but when we went later and we began to serve in Cambodia, after God had given us two children, and since that time we now have four total, um, but we took our two young children to go and serve in an underrepresented community, a minority group of Cambodia. And there we were having to try to learn the language and being stripped of what we even thought we knew, being idiots. And um, we realized that there were times when my wife could look into the eyes of another mother and without having the words... Their eyes could communicate the same pain of burying a child because so many lost their children in the Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge regime, those 
three or four years there that almost a whole generation was wiped out. And so every family we would meet had their own pain, their own story. And here, without our ever comprehending it, God had already, in a sense, prepared us to be able to connect in ways that words could not. And, um, you know, certain parts of the book, as I was writing it, that uh, it was an incredibly cathartic experience for me to work through it. But there were some paragraphs and things that when they came out, it was almost like an offering back to God. And I remember there was a particular part, I don't remember the exact words now, but how God uses the alphabet of experience um, so much more than our words as, mm-hmm. we, as we connect with broken, hurting people. Mm-hmm. And so for us, that's where we found the incredible difference between sympathy and empathy. Yeah. Maybe maybe I've come to this late and uh, you know, my wife and I we came back from Japan and we worked at a little college and they fired us fifteen minutes apart. Uh, and I'm those sorry. people cut us off completely. Uh hmm. for no you know, that it's it was just an odd you know, experience, and and nothing, of course, to compare mm. to what happened to you, but we felt that, in other words, in in and through this, oh, these people are, in other words, you look back at the falsity, the kind of false piety, the mm. notion, and you realize that the religion was functioning for as a kind of cover, mm. uh, that it enables people to do. One person, one man, even said. Uh, one of the people that fired me said, well, we're doing this, I recognize this as evil, but we're doing this for the greater good. I don't know that he used those exact words, but that was his explanation. And of course, that's what people's religion does for them. It enables them to do evil in good conscience. Hmm. Unfortunately, they do it in the name of Jesus. They think that Oh, right. I'm doing this in the name of Christ, therefore I can do it. In, you know. And so I think there's no greater evil that is done than that which is done in good conscience in the name of God and in the name of Christ. Which, of course, is a, is a tragedy and travesty in and of itself, but what you're describing is that part of that is that we're almost left in this facade, this false world, uh, in which we really don't make connection with people. We really don't, you know, it's it's all a kind of, uh, I don't know, a game. It's a whole kind of, and there's really no, as you're describing it, love for other people and almost an incapacity yeah. for love. Yeah, and I, I now have, my work that brought us here to Missouri is, is mobilizing churches to serve refugees and so I'm kind of like a cross-cultural guy in the middle of a monocultural group <laughs> mm-hmm. and trying to help uh, equip them to care for people who look different and come from different backgrounds. And that has its own challenges. But uh, but now recently they've given me a chance just to be a part-time pastor of two small churches as well. And I'm I'm noticing how rare this concept of simply loving people is. And you've described it very well here, that there's almost an incapacity. Mm-hmm. And 
And I remember recently I've actually said to some of the folks there, I said, folks, when we begin to actually love like this, it is a revolutionary act Mm -hmm. in the day and age we're living in because we are a fragmented, broken people living behind the facade where it's all about just trying to maintain a picture on the outside. And yet inside, people are desperately crying out for connection, Mm -hmm. for love, for presence. Uh, You know, I, I see one of the things we haven't talked about yet and maybe another time too, but one of the things that helped us to work through the grieving process was to actually learn the importance of boundaries. To be able to say yes or no without guilt. Mm. To be able to realize that boundaries are important that allow us to have health. Um, I see so many people who are living without any boundaries. You know, Dr. Swenson wrote a book uh, years ago, Margins, mm-hmm. and he describes how if you look at a piece of paper with writing on it, we have the margins, which is the white area around the writing. Mm-hmm. And and that's what keeps your, your ink from spilling off the page sort of thing. And and he, he makes a fantastic case and others, you know, Cloud and Townsend have written a number of books about boundaries and different different um, application points with families, marriage and so forth. They're so incredibly important for our lives to have the ability to, to keep health and balance and boundaries. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that helped us immensely was just the simple phrase that we saw on the wall of a psychiatrist's office once. And it simply said, today I will not should on myself. And, uh, and we, we saw that and we thought, what does that mean? You know? mm-hmm. And then as we began to reflect on it, how many times do we, we live our lives driven because we should do this, we should do that. Not that we're choosing it or that we necessarily want it or that it's good for us even, but we feel this, this drivenness to should do that. And so we got to the habit and I have to be careful when I'm speaking in churches to enunciate this very clearly, <laughs> but um, we got in the habit of saying, stop shoulding on yourself. <laughs> and uh, I have had people wake up from a dead sleep when I said that. <laughs> well, he's not supposed to say <laughs> What did he say? <laughs> but, um, but, but to choose to live your life on purpose, mm. to stop being a victim mm-hmm. to circumstances and to start intentionally choosing what we do. Mm-hmm. And our society seems to be in rebellion against people taking ownership for what they do. Mm-hmm. The the and what you're again describing is this weight of legalism. Yeah. That that it, it just seems like we all have this that the obligations that we imagine we mm. have. The Freud describes it as unconscious guilt. Mm. That which sounds strange, but in other words, the deep, what we're all driven, we're, we're all, it's almost masochistic mm-hmm. that we do these things imagining that right. in some, there's some big other, the, the God, God or the law or a father figure that we imagine we're right. pleasing or full. And, and this is why I think for passing through a dark period, maybe even an atheism, maybe even nihilism, mm-hmm. is almost necessary. Yeah. Because we have to get rid of God in that way. Yeah. You may know the author, I'm forgetting now, but someone actually said that all true journeys of faith go through atheism. 
in the sense that you've, we've got to be stripped away from these other pictures mm-hmm. and perceptions and come to see him anew, or at least to begin a journey of seeing him anew, because, again, none of us contain mm-hmm. him, or, you know, some would argue her or whatever. I mean, you know, but mm-hmm. none of us contain the deity in a way that we think. And uh, I've found a lot of freedom... I don't know if I gave you my business card or not, but yeah, when I travel, I find that so many times people meet others and they you have this set of questions that are just defined to try to pigeonhole and to see where you're at. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in other cultures, it's actually built into the fabric of their, of their society to know what language to use. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on what your status is, they have to use different right. pronouns. They're very or, Japanese. Yeah, yes. different words and all those things. And in Southeast Asia, the same. And, and so I understand how how ingrained it is in some places more than what we might say here in the United States. However, we do have our way of asking questions. You know, what do you do? Right. And, yes, yes. And, uh, you know, what do you believe or what are you? And, and it's almost like we want to know how to frame the rest of our conversation. You know, if you, if you jump into a car in some of these places down here in the south, a hitchhiker or whatever, mm-hmm. pretty quickly in the first 30 seconds or so, you may hear a question, are you saved? Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if the answer is yes, then it leads to one set of conversations mm-hmm. of mutual agreement or at least now fine-tuning to see what flavor you might be. Mm-hmm. But if you say no, then the whole agenda at that point is <laughs> right. to make sure this is your final trip to <laughs> of being unsaved. Or, But I've... I found for me that my desire is to, to is to know people and to try to find ways to answer questions that leads to a longer conversation. And so one of my favorite things to say now, which bothers some people because they think, oh, well, you should have said this, but I just say I'm a seeker of truth. Mm-hmm. And then I ask the person, what are some truths that have blessed your life? Mm-hmm. And I've found most people are happy to share things that they have found to be true and it gives me a chance to get to know them more and so forth instead of immediately being pigeonholed into either a Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or Muslim or whatever the Jain or Sikh um, it allows me to meet the person and the more you listen to other people which again is a rare thing today as well but as we listen you then hear their heart uh-huh. and, you, and you find there's so much we have in common at the much deeper level instead of allowing the labels and the fragmentation of life to separate us. Now, some people in, in my tribe will be like, well, you, why do you say you're a seeker of truth? You found the truth, you know, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, so my answer for them is, it's not that I haven't found truth. Mm-hmm. I have lots of truths that I've found, mm-hmm. but I've fallen in love with the God of all truth. There you go. And I want more. Yeah, yeah. And I know that he, he is bigger than I can comprehend, and so there are nuggets there are gems all over and each person has seen a facet of him that possibly i have not mm-hmm. and so as they share what they have seen of this omnipotent omnipresent omniscience you know of this great god beyond my comprehension as they share what they have seen it then increases my worship of who he is and so in that sense i'm a seeker of truth and and that is in a, in a sense that is tied to i think an understanding of god that as long as we have, you know, I uh, I studied apologetics mm-hmm. in college, which I, you know, I pretty I'm much ready had, to give an answer. <laughs> I had all the answers, <laughs> yeah. you know, 
hit me with your, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there is a kind of attitude that, uh, yeah, I got, I own this thing. <laughs> I own this truth. And it's mine. And, you know, let's, and, and so it, it is a kind of uh, doing battle with, oh, you, you bring out your sword and I'll bring out my sword. Yeah. Uh, which of course is once you once you get that well God is is you you can't do that and and maybe it is again this whole idea of imagining the of a theodicy of imagining that we can explain evil yeah uh, that well no we don't really have in other words I don't think that's what we have in the cross of Christ it's not an explanation mm. it's an answer. Not, not, and that, that didn't sound right. In other words, do you want a theory of evil? That, you know, here, let me explain why evil is a necessity. Or, in fact, do you want a real-world resolution? A solution to it. A solution. And I think there, there's a difference that we may not, we can't comprehend this. And by the same token, uh, to imagine that we can comprehend truth or God or right. that, uh, or that, uh, somebody else uh, uh, can't. So that's what cuts us off from people, yeah. is is our ownership of the truth. Whereas if we honestly acknowledge that none of us hold it all, then you come into a mutual opportunity to share and to grow and to walk together. Yeah. And that changes the relationship. It's no longer now a protagonism. It's... Uh, and you know i've I've been in some groups where they will talk about methods of evangelism, you know <laughs> certain things that you will do in order to prepare the heart for something else and and I'm like, love is not a method <laughs> right yeah. yeah you know this is you don't do these things in order to get a desired results that's yeah. not love that's something else <laughs> and that's the whole i mean that the church growth movement the whole mega church thing uh there are techniques that you can employ right to get a large crowd together yeah <clears throat> but of course the what you gather them together with you know is it, there is so much inauthenticity and so i think there is there's just millions, and I mean literally millions of disaffected people that have passed through that yeah. and realized the emptiness of it and are looking for an auth, uh, 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 agape love. They're looking for, and, and so many times, uh, I mean, may, maybe you can find that in, in these huge churches, or may, maybe it's there somewhere, but it's not the thing that is... Uh, you know, front and center in, in the whole church growth idea. Hmm. Brian, let me have you conclude with you. You, it, it, you know, your your journey, it, 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 the light begins to dawn, but the day that, it, tell the day of when you adopted your oldest son and what was <laughs> key there. Uh. Yeah, my wife and I, after the accident, um, I went back to finish my mathematics degree to be a teacher. And I chose mathematics because I figured it was unemotional. Mm. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> uh, 
And when we finished, we uh, looked for some work, and we we simply we wanted to. At this point, you know, a number of years, uh, two or three years had passed, and uh, we wanted to love people again, just the two of us. And so we we contacted uh, out in Micronesia. We knew there was always needs out there for for teachers and stuff, and they immediately wrote back and said, "Absolutely, we need you to come." Hmm. And I was thinking I'd be a math teacher. Well, they chose me to be a principal of a K-12 like, school system. But you're in charge of the whole thing. Yeah, so, <laughs> so a bit of a learning curve, Cliff. And um, so there we were, doing our best to survive and so forth. And one day, after church again, a lady came up and asked if we would be interested in adopting an unborn child. And of course, the right thing to say is, we'll pray about it. Uh, <laughs> But uh, immediately our hearts were just jumping with the possibility of loving again. Mm-hmm. And so the next day we went and we saw the the, the birth mother, uh, and she assured us that she had stopped drinking as soon as she found out she was pregnant, and there we were in her little hut in the jungle there, and she was spitting betel nut through the slats of her bamboo porch. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And we said well we'll we'll pray but we we would like to adopt your child and um it didn't take long for us to hear from god or whoever (laughs) and so we said yes and from that point on we would take her to her doctor's appointments and things and uh it was our baby now we had no clue would he be healthy or otherwise and but we wanted to love again and uh so finally the the call came on thanksgiving day about 2 o'clock in the morning, that it was time. We bounced in there, picked her up in the pickup truck. She sat in the front. My wife was thrown to the back. And we bounced back to the hospital. And our little boy, Elijah, was born healthy Mm. and whole. And uh, we held him in our arms and loved him. And and just as I share in the book some of the specific details, he was born on Thanksgiving Day. Almost like God was saying, you can love again. And um, and we rejoiced in that. And then because that particular island has United States law and all these different things they played into a sense, we were able to do the adoption, an international adoption, for free. And the only cost we had was to pay for his medical bills, mm-hmm. which was 30 U.S. dollars. And so here... On the day that we are receiving the paperwork, about 10 days after he was born, we look down on the date and we see that he's completely ours. And the date was December 3, 1997. Our first two children died on December 3, 1994. And we realize that this incredible God of mercy and grace and love had moved time and space or whatever you want to describe it as to literally give to us the chance to love again legally three years to the day. But that's not it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The night before, my wife wasn't feeling so well and she (laughs) all the caught up with the business of everything and starting over. She she thought she was sick, but she did take a test and she found out that she was pregnant. And Mm so we had just found out on December 2 that night And here we are holding Elijah, knowing that within three years of our first two children dying, 
we now have two more children. One was growing in Penny's womb, and Elijah was in our hands. And So Hannah was born less than eight months later in Guam, and we've been chasing the two of them ever since. <laughs> and uh, two more have popped out later, and so we now have four, and we're thinking that should be enough, but um, God can do what he likes. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's just incredible, because you had given, I mean, several things had been done that you just knew you could not have children. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned the book that... Um, scientifically and stuff, the odds were not good for us. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but God can do what he likes. Yeah. And, um, and so you've got four children. Now. We have four living oh. children and two yeah. more we long to see on the day of resurrection. Yeah. The, uh, I've, my wife and I have come to the place in our lives where we are no longer surprised that God works but we're always amazed in how he chooses to do it. Mm-hmm. So we live in a very deep, quiet, settled trust that he is good, no matter what comes. Mm-hmm. And we're very grateful for that. Uh, the name of the, the book and, and kind of the concluding thought is undeniable. What's undeniable? God's faithfulness is undeniable. And so we named the book Undeniable, An Epic Journey Through Pain. And my desire is that people will come to find God in this way as well, through their pain. Mm-hmm. And, and the book is available on Amazon. Correct. Brian Gallant, Undeniable, An Epic Journey Through Pain. And if you if you know someone that's going through trauma or pain or that has experienced this, this I think is uh, just knowing Brian is is uh, you recognize that God has uh, he's done something amazing in in Brian's life, and, and people are just attracted to him. They can see that. And there, I just, the, the, the story, there is a comfort there, there is light in the end of the tunnel. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.